0: To episode number three of the Lifestyle Empowerment Podcast. So, on the last episode, I did mention I was going to be talking about a specific subject, but um, I decided to change my mind and I'm going to talk about PCOS today. So, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, And the reason being is because I continuously see post being put out um of what i personally feel may not be the most accurate information um not only not only when it comes to addressing pcos but also diagnosing it and then you know like some misinformation for sure not that this information is you know potentially harming anybody i kind of would just like to give my you know insight my education, my experience with polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, I haven't really created if any content around polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is interesting because I actually work with it quite a bit. It's some of the first things that I worked with coming up when I started this. So what is PCOS? Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now that's usually identified as numerous fluid filled cysts found on the ovaries and how they determine this is things like ultrasounds or they get like potential uh, indicators through blood work and whatnot but a big statement here that is important to understand is not all pcos has cysts and having cysts does not always mean you have pcos and that one's really important to understand because a lot of people will go down these big rabbit holes trying to address this situation not understanding that, okay, like, well, like, so you'll have the PCOS symptoms, but you're not being diagnosed with PCOS. And that's because, oh, well you have no cysts. Well, I'll get into the forms and I'll explain how that is possible and help shed some light there, you know, to hopefully, you know, some people can find some better answers. With that being said though, you could also have PCOS symptoms, but not have PCOS, which I will also get into. So the Piece, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, that can ultimately result in the ovaries producing more androgens. This is probably your most common form. And what androgens, think of them as just like receptors for testosterone, think of them as muscle building. And we'll say, just for simplicity's sake, male characteristics. And what happens is most of the time, this inhibits ovulation, which then it's like this vicious circle you know, and just makes things worse, just promotes, you know, more hormonal imbalance, more androgen production, higher estrogen, decreased progesterone and all these cascade of things that come with this. Right. And so when you look at, um, you know, diagnosing this PCOS, how you can do that is one. Yes. You can use an ultrasound. You can see if there are cysts on the ovaries and or cysts period. And then that can help. Okay. Now we know, okay, maybe we should start looking into seeing if we actually have PCOS, not like saying, because there's endometrius or there's just having cysts that may not actually have the same effects as someone that's truly diagnosed with PCOS. Um, There's also blood work, which that one's really important to understand how to read. A lot of people don't, mainly because one, when you look at like ranges, All these ranges are saying, oh, you might not get a disease. They're not actually indicating functional range. And you could have something that's like, oh, this is optimal and this is optimal. It's near the lower end of the range, but it's still within the range. But that could mean something or it could be in the middle of the range. So the untrained eye would be like, oh, sweet, it's in the middle. It must be good when reality that could be telling a much bigger story. And so that's why it's important to understand how to diagnose blood work. Not that I would expect any general population person to understand how to do that. Um, but same with doctors, right? Cause their job is just to make sure you're within those ranges. It's not their job to make sure you're at a specific point within those ranges. Just as long as you're between the lines, it's all that matters. So anyways, Dutch testing is a really big way to test as well. That's a hormonal test. It's a urine test, dried urinalysis test for comprehensive hormones. That's what Dutch stands for. Um, this will give you a good indicator of androgens. Cause you can't really check androgens that well via blood work. Um, you also can't check that well, like your alpha reductase and stuff, which I won't get into all that stuff, but this is a good way. Um, I do have my Dutch training. I'm a Dutch provider. This is a good way to discover, you know, what form of PCOS do you have and to what degree do you have? Because like you'll read a lot of things, like I'll jump ahead quickly, like stinging nettle and soft palm metal you're told to take to help with your PCOS symptoms. but. If you don't have the high androgen form, it's not really necessary to take those. And if anything, it could make things worse, right? So it's important to understand what form you have to what degree to properly assess this and properly manage it. So what kind of happens to when you're talking about the high androgen form is you have your luteinizing hormone. And in terms of, we'll say in terms of the androgens, that luteinizing hormone is what promotes the production of androgens. And this is at like, if you look, it's at a constant level when on a normal menstrual cycle, it should be like low coming up to the, and then when you come up to the luteal phase, luteinizing hormone, it should increase, right? Because your corpus luteum is going to break down if you don't get pregnant from not receiving an egg that is going to release progesterone and that luteinizing hormone is going to stimulate a lot of things. But it's like this constant feed across the board, which is going to lead to the increased androgens. You're going to get a very low dip during that luteal phase compared to where it should be like this kind of thing. So that, so the high androgen is is probably one of the most common ones. And so like looking at symptoms here, I got on my list here, you know, most commonly is the excessive unwanted body hair. So we're talking facial hair, you know, anywhere on the body really. Um, And then, but also you could have balding. Um, so that's a symptom there, acne, mood swings, you know, irritability, anger, frustration. Um, obviously we all know irregular periods could be a symptom of PCOS. So low sex drive, they will label as a symptom of PCOS, which is that will be after having PCOS for a specific period of time. So after chronically having PCOS because initially you may have a very high sex drive because those higher androgens and that higher testosterone is going to increase the libido. But then over time, you'll notice your sex drive may drop off and that's because the chronic exposure leads the, the other conditions inflammation and so on and so forth, which I'll get into, uh, which will actually plummet that sex drive. Not to mention too, a lot of times like weight gain can occur. Uh, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and then that will result in lack of confidence and so on and so forth, poor sleep, everything. And then that will also decrease uh, the sex drive. Um, obviously seeing high testosterone on labs, uh, insulin resistance. I will get into that because that's a, what everybody will say. Oh, it's just insulin resistance. Uh, you know, Things like fatigue uh, and then obviously infertility. So those are some of, some of your main uh, symptoms that you could find when you, you know, when addressing PCOS or diagnosing PCOS. So I'm going to talk about the forms. There are four major forms or four known forms, leading causers of PCOS. The first one would be the insulin resistance. So now what is insulin resistance? Essentially when your body call, we'll say calls for an action, let's say the cells, there's a membrane, And you eat some carbohydrates and the action is to secrete insulin because that's the storage hormone is what's going to drive the glucose into the muscle cell, fat cells, whichever liver, so on and so forth. But think of it, the cell sometimes doesn't want to accept that insulin. So this is how my little analogy, let's say you're hosting a house party and you live across the street from like a frat house or something. And one guy comes over from that frat house, this douchey frat guy, no offense. And, uh, he knocks on the door and he says, hey, can I come in? Can I come party with you guys? And you're like, no, like you're, you're a douche. Get out of here, right? So then you slam the door in his face and he goes back and he grabs a bunch of his buddies from his frat house and they all come in and they barge through your door. And they get in there and these guys are known for wrecking things. So they start to cause a bunch of havoc. They you know wreck things, stress you out, all sorts of these problems, right? That's what insulin resistance is. So when the cell is rejecting the insulin for whichever reason, the body's gonna go, no, you're going to take this insulin so your pancreas releases more. And then eventually over time you like really, I'll say muck up the cell membrane and then it's not really accepting insulin and you pump out so much. And this is why type two diabetes is very common amongst women with PCOS. essentially the the very basic way of explaining insulin resistance and why it occurs is inflammation. So one way you could look at it is if a cell is under chronic inflammation, it doesn't want to bring in new nutrients. It's too busy breaking things down with its inflammatory signal. It's not ready for the anti-inflammatory to bring in the nutrients to rebuild. So it's rejecting that insulin because it's saying, no, we're not ready this is ultimately like how cells can die because they're not getting enough nutrients due to inflammation because there's just that chronic inflammatory signal that's not being properly resolved and properly managed. So then you eventually just secrete so much insulin, the pancreas gets tired, the beta cells die off and bam, that's how you can get type two diabetes, which is not just obesity and inflammation. It's also, well, sorry, not just obesity. It can be the inflammation from stress because there are a handful of people that are not technically obese that have diabetes, not from genetics. So. So that insulin resistance, what happens though, those high levels of insulin insulin is going to cause the ovaries to overproduce testosterone and androgens. And so that's, this is your most common form and that's why essentially. So another form is post pill. Now this one can be very temporary because if you come off the pill incorrectly, which many, many do, because there's very poor education out there on how to do so, uh, plus doctors have absolutely no idea. it create this surge of hormones, specifically androgens, which then can create this PCOS symptoms. And now if it's not managed properly or addressed properly within a specific time frame, it ultimately can lead to long-term PCOS. So you definitely want to be careful coming off the pill. Um, and then you can kind of lump the inflammation and insulin resistance together because as mentioned previously, the, the inflammation is going to create the insulin resistance, but that inflammation will also have an impact on hormones. It can cause your body to store androgens. Then and you got to look like, where is that inflammation coming from? What a lot of people, so this is kind of something that sparked me wanting to make this podcast about PCOS was gut health is a huge factor in this, but You have to look at like, once again, gut health is the symptom. Like if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, if you have tight junction compromisation, whichever it may be, lack of stomach acid, lack of bile, so on and so forth. These are symptoms. What created that? Now I'm going to jump ahead here and say some of the most common causes, early causes of PCOS is trauma. Whether that be any form childhood trauma, rape, you know, just school, whatever, like any form of trauma, because that is stress, which could have led to downregulation in many things, upregulation of cortisol, nutrient depletion, destroying your guts, producing less stomach acid, messing the liver up, like I could go on forever, right? And so this is where inflammation can lead to PCOS. Let's get inflammation is the symptom. I want to say that a hundred times over to understand that. So it's not as simple as just taking like omegas or anti-inflammatories. Yes, it can help, but it's not the like answering the root cause. Um, But that inflammation can lead to several things like the insulin resistance, like your body holding on to androgens, especially if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, uh, things like that, right? That's why you'll see like a lot of bloating and distension in women. Uh, with, with some women with PCOS uh, because of that. Now for the big one here, this is the one that a lot of people do not understand. And this is where it goes very undiagnosed. And this is where I've made the mistake too, because I'm like, oh, we've done this. We've done salt palmetto. We've done this, we've done that. And it's not responding. Adrenal form of PCOS. You don't have to have cysts or high testosterone or high androgens to have the adrenal form of PCOS. This one is really important to understand. This is the one that a lot of women go undiagnosed and doctors are just like, yeah, see you later. I don't know, sleep better, eat better, whatever, right? Some BS that they throw out there because they don't understand how to address this one or how to actually diagnose it. So when you look at the adrenal form, you have your HPA axis, your hypothalamus pituitary axis. And all this stuff is connected with the ovaries, the thyroid, now re- releasing hormone, blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> Super sciency. Uh, what essentially happens is the overactivity of the adrenals will stimulate overproduction of DHEA, which feeds into your androgens, but it will also stimulate the overproduction of androgens. So now you have this double whammy here and you have this increased Levels of androgens leading to increased, because that's important to understand too. The high testosterone, like yes, the inflammation can create the high testosterone and androgens, but the high testosterone and androgens can also create the inflammation, especially if it's feeding into estrogen and blocking detox pathways. If you're not methylating properly, liver compromisation affects thyroid and so on and so forth. Right? I'm trying not to get too technical and take up too much time. Everybody knows me knows I love to do that, but I'm trying my best not to do this. But the important thing to understand is this adrenal PCOS creating higher levels of DHEA and androgens and converting it to high levels of testosterone can happen independently without the ovaries. It can happen in peripheral tissues, right? And so this is where it goes really undiagnosed because it's like, all right, well, your ovaries aren't doing this. You're not doing this, blah, blah, blah. blah. It doesn't make sense, right? It could be the adrenal form. So essentially how we're kind of like assessing the adrenal form is cortisol tests and stuff, right? It's a big, you need quite a few factors to bring in to account to like make sure like, okay, this is the adrenal form. Um, I actually am currently working with a client that for sure has the adrenal form, which is probably cascading into other things. But, um, when you look at like her symptoms, like just has no energy, like can't get up in the morning all this kind of stuff. But that's due to the chronic exposure of this situation. And so now it's just a matter of like refreshing cells and so on and so forth. I won't get into that. But but that one, that one really goes missed. And that's where I've yet to see anybody talk about that or properly understand that. It took myself quite a while too. Like I made a lot of mistakes getting up to this point to like understand the adrenal PCOS. Um, but it's important, very important to properly diagnose. I'm going to say that again. before I finish this podcast, um, another thing too, that's important to understand is certain birth controls can have androgens in them. So they'll, you'll actually be putting androgens in your body, which that can too lead to PCOS, which is also important to understand that. Especially because a lot of, this is a big thing here, fitness born diseases. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is a real big one. And I'll go over two counts as to as why this occurs. Because I'm on the topic of birth control and adding androgens to the body, let's talk PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs. So many women will do hours and hours of cardio a week, will you know cut so much food and lift five, six times a week, sometimes seven, not get the results they're looking for because they shouldn't be doing that. But They go, okay, well, obviously someone or themselves convinced that I need to do performance enhancing drugs in order to get these results, especially if they want to compete on the bodybuilding stage because everybody else is already on them. So like, I'm sorry, but you're not going to have a very high chance of winning unless you have insane genetics, unless you go on performance enhancing drugs. No, I'm not promoting performance enhancing drugs. I'm going to make a whole podcast on that. Please understand that I do not promote those drugs. Um, they're not as bad as people think when talking about progress, but, uh, that's why i will make a podcast. Anyways, They'll go on something like Anavar because, oh, it's mild, it's basic, whatever. But they might already have high androgens. They're already suffering from acne. They're already suffering from water retention. They're already suffering from irregular periods. They go on something like Anivar, which promotes higher androgens. Bam, they give themselves PCOS. I've seen it in the labs. I've seen it personally. Like, So if you have these situations, please take care of that first before considering going on a performance-enhancing drug. I cannot stress that enough. Anyways, the second count to that, where fitness-born disease of PCOS is the overtraining and undereating. You can look at a lot of young athletes as they grow up, young female athletes, obviously. As they grow up, they they become PCOS, right? They get diagnosed with PCOS, and why is this? This goes back to when you look at the forms and the cause, the potential causes of polycystic ovarian syndrome the overtraining and the under eating or the overeating and the lack of recovery and you name it leads to the gut issues, to the mental issues, to the trauma, to the nutrient deficiencies, to the insulin resistance, to the inflammation. And it promotes all these factors that can create PCOS. It's very commonly caused by training. There's a lot of times I see women from like 18 to 24 years old just doing everything they can whether it's like being in the gym playing sports doing this so on and so forth you know then next thing you know at the age of 28 30 maybe even 40 all of a sudden they have pcos you know and that sounds weird for me to say because i'm only 32 years old so how long but you can just see it in the literature right and i have seen it personally from some people because it happens sooner to some than others based off genetics right and so Those are ones to be very careful. Make sure you're recovering. Make sure you're not overtraining. Make sure you're sleeping, right? Take care of your mental health, manage your stress, do all these things because it's super important that, you know, you recover properly, that you don't create gut health issues and that you don't create inflammation and you don't get PCOS, right? Because a lot of women struggle with this. Obviously, I have no idea what it's like right? But I've worked with quite a handful of women. I'm currently working with a handful of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome and it's, they struggle, right? And I don't want to see them go through that. Now, I'm not saying that they got it via that. Sometimes, like I said, trauma, stress and trauma is a huge factor of creating PCOS. So just be weary of all that kind of stuff, but it's also important not to confuse polycystic ovarian syndrome with amenorrhea. So like amenorrhea is the irregular lack of cycle, of a menstrual cycle in a female, because they'll get that. And sometimes doctors will be like, oh yeah, you might have PCOS. You might have that or whatever. And in reality, it's due to nutrient deficiencies over training and so on and so forth, right? Um, because what happens is, you know, when you train, you need to use your hormones. So you burn through them. You're not eating enough. You're not resting enough. You don't, you're not producing enough DHEA, androgens, testosterone, estrogen, so on and so forth. And then that leads to missed or irregular cycles, plus possible symptoms of PCOS because of the inflammation and insulin resistance does not mean you have PCOS. So how do we distinguish this? We look at the luteinizing hormone and the follicular stimulating hormone on lab work, usually around day two of the cycle, and that will give us an indicator whether or not it's amenorrhea or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, so I won't go into details of that. Um, but that's something that you could check out to help understand, um, you know, okay, am I having a menorrhea or am I potentially being diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome? Um, And also to be sure to rule out genetics, high levels of prolactin, uh, you know, and just hypersensitivity to androgens and androgens and whatnot, you know, don't just think, oh, no, I have these symptoms. Oh no. The things he's saying, I might have PCOS don't like make sure you diagnose properly. You know, make sure you seek out the help of a, of a professional and diagnose this properly. That way you can create the best plan of action for moving forward. Um, and so essentially that's, you know, I'm trying to keep this, we're already at 22 minutes. I'm trying to keep this not too long, not too technical. I really want people to, you know, engage and, and pay attention, you know, and just that way we can get a better understanding of polycystic ovarian syndrome. But I will, I'll make a few comments here. So if we're looking at the forms of polycystic ovarian syndrome, so when we're talking about insulin resistance, how you can manage this, now please take this with a grain of salt because everybody's different and without proper supervision, these recommendations might not work the greatest or at all. But when we're talking insulin resistance and the high testosterone androgens, the most common thing people do is like saw palmetto and stinging nettle, because that's gonna help feed out it's going to help aromatize that androgen, those androgens and testosterone and kind of clear them out. Now it's important to understand though. It doesn't just clear out and go away. It goes to estrogen mainly. And then you could do that. But if you're not detoxifying estrogen properly, if you have high levels of beta glucuronidase if you have poor detox pathways, poor methylation, blah, 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 blah. Sorry for sounding so professional. <laughs> um, not sounding so professional, but that could just create more problems and more symptoms. So you want to make sure your liver is functioning optimally, right? You want to make sure you have some form of liver support, whether that be not overtraining, sleeping properly, uh, you know, the nutrients to support this, like goji berries, supporting methylation, glutathione production. So like anacetylcysteine uh is a good one. You know, inocital, you'll hear inocital really helps with PCOS too, because once again, it helps drain out androgens. It also helps with serotonin receptors, so improves happiness, so on and so forth. But you will see some people, some women will take inocetyl and they'll start to feel a lot better. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a couple months, they kind of feel this, they go back to feeling the same or they feel worse because they're not properly detoxifying their estrogen. And it's kind of just recirculating in the system and leading to a lot of complications. Um, so it's important to make sure that your liver is up to snuff. Um, you could look at like, you know, more advanced things like Tudka, um, you know, implementing some ox bile. Once again, consult the professional. Okay. Please don't just blindly take these things. I have to stress that enough. don't want that coming back on me. Um, but so those are some forms you could deal with that, but obviously just a well-rounded diet and stress management. Uh, so when you look at like probably the fastest way of safely decreasing inflammation would be the Mediterranean diet, you know, lots of olive oils, fruits and vegetables, fish, stuff like that. Stay away from chicken. Chicken might be on the Mediterranean diet. I don't know uh, what Google says, uh, but I always recommend staying away from chicken. A lot of people are intolerant to it, staying away from eggs, um, stuff like that lots of fish, grass-fed beef, things like that. Um, So just a well-rounded diet to help decrease that inflammation. Now, I did see someone talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome and really, really promoting fiber. This is where you need to be careful. Yes, we understand that fiber is crucially important for all sorts of functions, but some people may not be ready for a big amount of fiber, whether that's due to just the lack of tolerance or most cases, the overgrowth of bad bacteria, even potential SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. All fiber is going to do is feed into that and create more inflammation because the bacteria creates a lot of lipopolysaccharides, which create a lot of inflammation, which stress the hell out of the liver. And you can see where I'm going with this, right? So it's important to make sure that you're not feeding into that. So although you read all fruits and vegetables, just make sure that when you're eating these fruits and vegetables, that you're not getting worse. You're not same with like probiotics. Don't blindly take probiotics. Okay. Um, because they, I think they've been mentioned too, that they really help or can help with PCOS. Just be careful when you're assessing these things. Uh, when you're talking about the pill, one of the uh, like to keep it very short and simple. When you prepare to come off birth control, just make sure you're eating a lot of food and supporting hormones. So you can look at things like chastberry, uh, humanafort, boron. You know, make sure you're not overtraining. That you're sleeping lots. Uh, you know. Good amount of healthy dietary fats to produce cholesterol to produce hormones, um, because you want to make sure you're at optimal levels so that when you pull it, it's not like this sudden massive change which can create these effects. Um, so that's like in a very simpli- simplistic nutshell to come off birth control and potentially negate the effects of post-pill PCOS. Eat a lot of food, sleep a lot produce hormones. Okay. Uh, once again, the inflammation that will go in with the insulin resistance and everything, just a sound diet, not overtraining, all that kind of stuff. And the adrenal one, that one's a little more tricky. Um, you know, simplistically put, obviously decrease your stress load in your life, improve your, you know, I don't want to say improve your adrenal function. Usually they function well. It's the resistance that's creating the problem. Cause I spoke about insulin resistance while well, there's cortisol resistance is the same thing. So you can gunk up the membranes and not really accept cortisol. So you'll get misdiagnosed with like adrenal fatigue when in reality, it's just your cell membranes are gunked up and you're having trouble accepting that cortisol. So cleaning up the cells, supporting liver function, decreasing inflammation, building your cell membranes out of healthy fats. So things like found in the Mediterranean diet, And that should really help lots of meditation box breathing nature walks being by water swimming getting out to the mountains having fun you know being with good people all that kind of stuff is a really good way to target don't really want to recommend supplementation other than you know you can look at like ashwagandha and theanine and magnesium you have to be careful though. Um, there's some complexes like with cordyceps, they increase oxygenation and ATP production. Um, you got like rodelia rose extract to promote adrenal function, you know, this kind of stuff, uh, just be careful once again, once again, because all the professional, um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to the adrenal PCOS, as long as it's not like crazy genetics, like in a bad way contributing, um, just lots and lots of stress management and which is like so much easier said than done in today's society. Cause we all know how stressful our society is. So, uh, but that's like a good way that you can kind of like address the adrenal PCOS. Um, and then just a quick tidbit, With training, because I spoke about how training can cause PCOS symptoms or cause PCOS in itself, plus many, many other problems, gut issues, mental health issues, you name it. understand that, yes, exercise serves so many benefits, but if you are not, it's not what you do in the gym, it's what you recover from. If you are not recovering properly, you can negate all those benefits and do the complete opposite. So when it comes to training, if you have PCOS, we'll talk in the case of having PCOS. I would say four times a week tops, maybe only three, okay? And you have to be, this is gonna be a whole nother podcast about training stimuli and how they affect the physiology of the body because not a lot of people talk about this or understand it. But in this case, Don't do crazy high volume bodybuilding workouts. You're already inflamed. Don't contribute to the inflammation. You're not gonna, sure you have high androgens and high testosterone, but you're already super inflamed. You're not gonna create enough signal via your training to promote a lot of muscle growth. So there's no point in doing these crazy workouts, right? Um, I did see something too. Sorry, just kind of getting sidetracked with this where it's like, it's not all just about losing weight. That is correct. But the end result of losing weight is ultimately what can really help PCOS. But people with PCOS have trouble losing weight because of inflammation, insulin resistance, gut health, uh, you know, adrenal issues, thyroid issues, you, hor- lack of hormones, you name it, right? So weight loss becomes really difficult and people get frustrated. So we start to say, oh, no, don't worry. It's not just about weight loss weight loss will really help. It's achieving that weight loss. So that can be very difficult, but you address all the things mentioned prior and you should have an easier time with achieving that weight loss, which will reduce inflammation, will reduce like high levels of testosterone and adrogens because there's less adipose tissue peripherals to convert these hormones into the ones we don't want too high of so on and so forth. So weight loss, yes, is a very valuable tool. But anyways, <laughs> Back to the training. Um, I say three, four times a week's top. Uh, you know, you don't need to do cardio every day or tons of cardio. Uh, just make sure you get nice casual walks in, nice of step, lots of steps, lots of neat, non-exercise activity, you know, lots of movement go. Speaking of insulin resistance, like after every meal, go for a 10 minute walk. I don't care if it's on your treadmill outside it's obviously better, but treadmill is better than nothing. I'm guilty of just using the treadmill unless I'm walking my girls. Um, But that will really help improve insulin sensitivity and decrease the risk of the resistance contributing to the pcos that's a that's a really big one plus you're getting in more steps per day which is going to really help with all sorts of you know functions in the body um so yeah three to four times a week don't need a ton of cardio you know don't need a massive deficit. You also don't maybe want like a calorie surplus. So kind of go around a maintenance level and just be freaking happy with what you're doing and what you're eating. Make wise choices. Stay away from alcohol. When you look at things like PCOS and how it affects hormones and neurotransmitters, it's going to promote addictive tendencies. And one of those being alcoholism. And you see it like a lot of women with PCOS drink a lot of alcohol, whether they go on the weekends or whichever, because alcohol will also increase confidence because a lot of these women are struggling with lack of confidence. So the alcohol makes them feel better, antidepressant, whatever, right? It's only contributing. You feel better in that moment and sure you had a great time and everything, but then the next day or the next week or six months after that, you feel worse and you can't really resolve these issues. So I understand that in today's society, it's all about drinking and partying. You can't go have a, uh, food with a friend without getting a drink. I understand that, but just be wise about that. Try to limit your alcohol intake. There's nothing. The only, the only little positive thing maybe about alcohol is the stress reduction. As long as you're doing it properly and you're not in a state where it's very, very damaging to you like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, but otherwise there's no benefit to alcohol. It's poison. It's absolute poison. Um, so Anyways, uh, that's what you kind of want to avoid, you know, avoid, obviously we all know no matter what symptom you have to avoid, you know, highly processed foods and so on and so forth. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy yourself. Just try not to make the abundance of your diet with heavily processed foods or things containing like a lot of like poor ingredients or whichever. Um, but when it comes to the training, once again, I'm going to make this a separate podcast because I could give out training tips. So, you know, like very nutrient partitioning style training, uh, which I'll actually kind of comment a little bit on the video of how I kind of achieved the results for my photo shoot. Um, but you have to be trainable in a specific stimulus. So I could be like, okay, well, you're going to do a specific workout like this, but if you're already having very poor carb tolerance, it's probably not going to benefit you. So I'd rather make those other podcasts first to make more sense of things. And then everybody you know, kind of have a general idea and they can maybe put together a better workout program for themselves. Um, I will say though, carbs are your friend when you utilized properly, but there is nothing wrong with doing a cyclical approach of low carb or like keto or whichever. Okay. You'll see that uh, I see a lot of the information of PCOS going around demonizing low carb diets. Yes. Long term, they can lead to a lot of health complications, whether we realize it or not, we get such a drastic response initially that would become biased to them. We're like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. I love how much weight I've lost in everything in two weeks. That's just water, glycogen inflammation, actual fat loss is very minimal. You go back to eating carbs, it all reverses. Okay. Not always, but Usually that's the case, but a cyclical approach, like two or three times a week or, or two days a week or one week on of keto, and then two weeks of carbs, something like cyclical approaches can really, really help, um, reduce that inflammation, bring down hormones, stuff like that. I don't want to get too in depth because as mentioned, everybody's different. And I don't want people taking this information and using it incorrectly until I start to, you know, we're already going on 35 minutes here. So. I don't want to make the podcast too long. I'll separate them into different podcasts and I can talk more about like training and stuff and, you know, especially when it comes to disease states like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and one last thing too, polycystic ovarian syndrome can be an autoimmune disease and a lot of people don't understand that either. Right. And so when it comes to autoimmune diseases, it's important to assess which immune pathway you are dominant on, dominant in, and address that appropriately because, oh, I have an autoimmune disease. This says it's really good for immune health. It could be really bad for you. Okay. Um, so make sure you properly assess that as well. You know, seek out professionalism, you know, the drill. Okay. So Hopefully that wasn't too much for everybody. Um, if it was, as mentioned, please throw them in the comments because I want to really provide some great information and not have people scratching their heads wondering, okay, well, he said this, but do I do this and do I do that? Um, so if we could, like, if you guys could definitely throw in some comments or message me or whatever, and I can start elaborating either in the comments or podcasts to come, or I don't mind, you know, um, sharing some messages back and forth kind of thing to help, people within reason, mainly based off of the morals, because there's only so much I can recommend to a person without really knowing anything about their metabolism, history, and so on and so forth. So, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. And, uh, I think on the next podcast, or I think I'm going to stop saying, what I'm going to talk about on the next podcast, because I might be changing it as time comes because things pop up and I think, okay, maybe this is an important topic to talk about this week. So, um, yeah, I guess you guys will just have to stay tuned for the next podcast, but Thanks for those who are listening in and watching in. I hope you have a great night.